Mordecai has been in a position where he's been able to learn the things that go on in Persia. He's got a very responsible position. And so he learns very quickly what's happened as Haman has had the year of the king and a decree has been issued to destroy and kill and annihilate all the Jews. And the city of Shushan has been in confusion. They're perplexed. They're torn. Because the Jews aren't as hated by the people of Shushan as they are by Haman. Haman's the one who hates the Jews. And he hates them with a murderous hatred. And Mordecai learns everything that's happened. And his response is to tear his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. These are the clothes of mourning. These are the clothes that people would wear when they were going through times of grief. Mordecai is grieved. Mordecai is mourning this declaration that has happened that is threatening the people of God. And we've learned, as we've looked at uh, Esther chapter 3, that this is more than just a personal grievance between Haman and Mordecai. Haman has gone way beyond a personal grievance. And Mordecai is uh, beginning to uh, fight uh, a battle that was being fought between Agag and uh, Saul. And Saul refused to fight, and Samuel followed through. Somehow Haman is a part of this stream. We don't know if it's genetically, but he definitely has the same opposition to God's people that the, Agag the Agagites had, the Amalekites, and way back to the seed of the serpent. And Mordecai's response is to grieve. It's the kind of grieving that uh, David went through when he lost his child. It's grief, sackcloth and ashes. He goes into the middle of the city. And when Jewish people grieve, they are not quiet about it. This is a loud and bitter cry. He is, he is publicly grieving in the midst of the public square. I mean, people in our day might walk past such a person and be embarrassed and, and quickly rush on or try to get the police involved. I mean, get this person off the street. They're, they're grieving openly in front of everybody. And some people, they're just, you know, it's not my way. But Mordecai is grieving in front of the king's gate. He can't go into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. It's not allowed. Persia doesn't work that way. The concerns of individuals, their grief and their sorrow, it doesn't go into the administrative area of the, of the, the court. That's, that's for the common people out there. We have important business. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among all the Jews. It's not just Mordecai, everyone who hears about this, who is a Jewish person, responds this way, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Suddenly, Persia is filled with a sound of weeping. 
like that weeping that was heard when they wiped out children to try to destroy the Christ child. Weeping and wailing, laying in sackcloth and ashes. But notice something about the relationship between Mordecai and Esther. It's changed a bit. Esther has to be told through intermediaries what's going on. Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her. And the queen is deeply distressed because she doesn't know why Mordecai is weeping. She doesn't know why other Jews are weeping. She's actually separated from Mordecai and she's separated from the Jewish people. This is the one that by the end of this chapter we're to read, you know, may have been raised up for such a time as this. But at the beginning, we see how separated she is. She's living the royal life. She's in the royal uh, uh, court and she's separated from the people of God. Her maids and eunuchs come and tell her and she's deeply distressed. So her first response is to make sure that Mordecai doesn't continue to wear this sackcloth because it's going to affect his ability to go into the king's gate. He won't be able to perform his functions. Why are you doing this? You're wearing sackcloth. Put these clothes on. So she sends garments, but he wouldn't accept them. And Esther, in order to give a message to Mordecai, verse 5 tells us, had to go through Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who's attending her. See, she's going through intermediaries. She's separated from Mordecai. She's separated from the plight of the Jewish people. She doesn't understand what's going on. She tries to deal with it administratively. Send him some clothes. Get him a message. Then finally, as she speaks to Hatak, she tells Hatak to find out what is happening and why. What and why this was. Why is Mordecai laying in sackcloth? I need to know. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square. It was in front of the king's gate. He's right there. Public grieving. And Mordecai tells him, everything that has happened to him. And notice what Mordecai knows. He has a lot of information. He knows a lot about this conversation between Haman and the king. He knows precise numbers. He tells him all that happened to him, verse 7, and the sum of money that Haman promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. 10,000 talents. He knows that number. That's half the tax revenue of the kingdom of Persia. But Mordecai knows. He has access to the mechanisms of the Persian government. And now he's publicly grieving over the threat to the Jewish people. He understands the threat. He's clear-headed. And he's grieving because he sees exactly what's happening. And then he does more. Verse 8, he gives them a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. Esther needs Hatak to come and bring the decree, which she has not seen, and explain it to her. The people are, are threatened, and Esther, the one who's appointed to save them, doesn't even know that the decree exists, much less the threat. She has to have it all broken down to her. 
Now, we often see in this chapter, Esther as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice that she makes in being willing to uh, give her life and, and go to the king, even though her life is threatened. But we need to understand that sometimes the pictures that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ are pictures that show us a contrast as much as they show us a likeness. In fact, sometimes even more of the contrast than the likeness. And this is true of all of the types. It's true of Moses. It's true of David. It's true of Adam. It's true of all of the events and the rituals that point to Lord Jesus Christ. They all fail in some way to show the wonder and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of his once for all sacrifice for sin, the nature of his sacrifice in giving himself, the courage that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated in saying, not my will, but your will. And Esther is like this. She's a faint picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, but mostly by contrast, because she is not able to truly understand what's going on until it's broken down for her. She is out of touch with the people in contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in that passage in Hebrews that inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That is the Lord Jesus Christ identified with you in order that through his death he might deliver you from the one who has the power of death, the devil that through death, identifying with you, the Lord Jesus Christ might set you free. It's the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ identified with you, that he knew what your plight was, even better than you know it. But not so with Esther. Esther is given a copy of this decree in verse 8. It's explained to her, and then Mordecai delivers through Hatak a command to go to the king. Mordecai, who has raised Esther, is now telling Esther what to do. Mordecai has backbone. He will support Esther in this chapter. He will support uh, Esther in what she has to do. It's not Esther alone. It's Esther and Mordecai together. It's the way that God has appointed Mordecai and Esther to have this relationship. And even though Esther's out of touch, he's able to get a command through the intermediary, to tell her to go to the king. Go, Esther. Make supplication to him. Plead before him for your people. Now, Esther hasn't told the king that she is Jewish. This is another part of the story. It's another part of the, of the thing that's unraveling. As, as God begins to show layer by layer the way this drama is going to unfold. But Mordecai is commanding her to go plead before the king. This is a desperate situation. So Hattach returns and tells Esther the words of Mordecai. And then Mor Esther, now that she has become queen, she has a position. She has a title. She has uh, a role to play. And so she issues a command to Mordecai. Esther is beginning to act like a queen. She's responding to Mordecai with a command. 
Something has changed in the relationship between Esther and Mordecai, and it's for the benefit of God's people. Esther tells Mordecai what the problem is. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know. Everybody knows this. That any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. I think I told you that uh, archaeologists have found a relief uh, drawing that shows uh, a Median soldier standing behind the king with an axe. This was not an idle threat. You walk into the king's court unannounced, and the axe is ready. The henchman is already there. He's within feet, and he knows how to use the axe. Esther knows. I even know I'm the queen. Everybody has this same requirement, except those seven advisors who we read about in chapter 1 who see the face of the king. They can walk in. Not when the king is in his bedroom with somebody. Not then. But at other times, when he's doing his business, when he's in the court, they can walk in. They can walk in unannounced. We don't know about Haman. It's possible he had some freedom. We don't know. But Esther can. So this is communicated through a talk. Again, she's got to speak through the intermediaries to Mordecai. And then Mordecai gives, sends his response back. Mordecai is speaking to Esther as one who knows how she thinks. He speaks to her about her heart. He's raised her like a daughter. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. You think you're in a safe place, but you're not safe there. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now you can argue about this. Uh, what did Mordecai mean precisely? Where's the relief and deliverance coming from? Some people say uh, God was referred to as uh, a place in certain uh, translations of the Bible. It's pretty clear to me that Mordecai had a general sense that, that there was going to be deliverance through some human agent other than Esther. That he had that confidence. Where did he get that confidence? Well, he was raised as one of the people of God. It was part of the way that he was thinking. It was part of the reason he had such courage. But in this book, it's not explicitly stated. There's a real hero of the story, but the hero remains so far in the background that Mordecai says relief and deliverance from another place. Just this vague sense. It's going to work out for the people of God. In the book of Joshua, Rahab reports to the spies that she's heard about the way that God has delivered the people of God. And the people of the land are afraid. Later on in the book of Esther, Haman's wife is going to speak in much the same way. There's something that God is doing to preserve the Jewish people. And the people of the world recognize it. And certainly Mordecai does. 
Relief and deliverance. You know the deliverance that God has provided. You have more detail than Mordecai. You know the rest of the story. Mordecai simply says relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. What's he doing? He's saying, you are in trouble either way. So I'm telling you to go to the king. Go to the king and take your chances with whether or not he's going to hold out that golden scepter to you. Note that Esther has said that she has not been called to go into the king for 30 days in verse 11 at the end. 30 days. They've been married five years. Their relationship is is substantially cooled, at least as far as the king is concerned. Another reason why we don't look at Esther and we think, oh, this is this romantic story where the king fell in love with Esther, she became the queen, she helped to save God's people, and they had this love story. It wasn't like that. She's afraid to go into the king. She hasn't been called to him in 30 days. What's he doing during this time? He still has the other house. The concubines. She hasn't been called in. She actually, her life is at threat, is threatened. Verse 14, Mordecai says something that reminds us of what we read in Joel chapter 2. Who knows? He says, Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows? The people of God in the time of, of Joel were to call a fast. They were to consecrate a fast. They were to repent and tear not only their garments, but their hearts. To repent and come to God being willing to uh, ask for forgiveness of the living God. Who knows whether he will not relent from this day of the Lord. This army that's coming in to wipe them out. Who knows? It's not that specific in the book of Esther. It's language that echoes Joel chapter 2. But Mordecai seems to have just a general confidence that there's a real hero of his story acting behind the scenes that there is a reason why Esther is on the throne, that she's come to this place of influence where she has a relationship with the king. Esther responds with great concern for this reality, but a willingness to move forward. Her response is to call for a general fast. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. That is a more significant fast than the Day of Atonement. Three days, night and day. This is a significant fast. Esther is saying that the situation is dire. That she needs everybody who is now fasting and weeping and wailing to fast for her. 
It doesn't specifically mention pray. It doesn't mention repent like it does in the book of Joel. Just fast. You see, the people of God in Persia have lost a lot of their relationship with the covenant-keeping God. The way that he held them close, the way that he kept them in a relationship with him through the, through the prayer of the people of God, through the repentance of the people of God, through the day of atonement, through the sacrificial system, through the prophets that they would listen to, through the place where they would worship God, all of these things. They lost touch with many of them. But she understands one thing. She understands that they need to fast. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. She's going to go to the king in a weakened state after fasting for three days? Who is she depending upon? The king's benevolence? She's going to look a little bit emaciated. Maybe he won't like her looking like that. A guy that has been part of this look, search for the queen with this 12-month, uh, you know, six months of this, six months of that preparation. Now, her concern is that she prepare along with the people that she is beginning to identify with. Esther begins to move closer to looking like the Lord Jesus Christ here. At first, she's separated from God's people, but now she begins to identify with God's people and to fast along with them and to call them to fast. And her willingness to go to the king is a willingness to give her life. Now, it's not a courageous statement. Uh, I'm going to go to the king. I'm going to put my life on the line. No, it's basically a state of resignation. It's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's along the lines of the way someone would respond if someone said, well, there's only one medical procedure we can do. And you're like, well, okay. That's the way that Esther is approaching this issue. She is willing to fast. She's identifying with the people. But it's by simply being resigned that this is the only way. Mordecai is mentioned this to her. He said, you know, you're in trouble if you keep silent at this time. There's going to be relief for the people of God. There's going to be deliverance. But you and your father's house will perish. You're in trouble either way, Esther. So Esther went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Esther has issued this command and all of the people are going to follow through. Esther is someone who is beginning to look a little bit like the Lord Jesus Christ, but in many ways, so different. Esther always had Mordecai to tell her the right thing to do. Esther always had Mordecai, even at this time, when she's the queen, he's telling her the right thing to do. He's giving her wise advice. He's uh, being her source of courage. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was in that garden, there was none to steady him. He wanted to sh shrink back. He shed drops of blood. There was no relief from his grief. The Lord Jesus Christ effectively entered into exile for us 
there in that garden and on that cross. It was the only time that he would experience the situation of being separated from his father in any way. He considered himself to be forsaken. He cried out in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He went through that abandonment, that being cut off from the living God, while at the same time being the representative of the people. He represented us. He was taking on the penalty for sin that we owed. He was taking on that which uh, we are told we need to repent from. Esther was out of touch with the people of God. She didn't know at first what was going on when they were fasting and weeping. Even Mordecai, she did not know why he was wearing the clothes of mourning. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the other hand, always knew exactly why he was suffering. He explained it to his disciples many times, and he went into the garden, and he went off by himself to pray. And he called upon his disciples to stay awake, and they couldn't. Because the time, the hour of darkness for the devil himself was, was uh, there. And the disciples were not spiritually prepared. Esther is, at this point, uh, given royal privileges that she uh, is going to use to try to win the king's heart, to try to win uh, the king's ear for her cause, for the cause of her people. But Jesus was called upon to lay aside his royal privileges. Second Corinthians 8, 9 tells us that he uh, was very rich, and yet he gave up that rich, uh, that wealth in order to become poor for us, that through his poverty we might become rich. He set aside his privileges. He set aside those things that uh, caused him to be uh, above the people of God. And he began to serve from down here where we live. But we have the sense that maybe God is angry with us. Maybe God is not listening to us anymore. All of those things the Lord Jesus Christ never experienced before, but he took them upon himself on the cross. Imagine that. When you have the sense that God is not listening to you because you're holding on to your sin, and the Lord Jesus Christ, sinless, takes on that same experience. That's the kind of sin bearer that we have. He totally identified with us. And Esther uh, may have said, if I perish, I perish, as a statement of uh, uh, resignation. But the Lord Jesus Christ self-consciously surrendered to his Father's will. It was the only way to set us free, you see. The book of Hebrews, in that passage that we read, tells us that uh, it was through death that he destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. He tricked the devil. The father tricked the devil. 
through the death of the Son of God, all of the children of God are set free. This is the way. Well, the devil didn't know. The wisdom was greater than the devil's scheming. But this shows the gravity of our exile from God. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the royal son, would have to take our place, would have to live in the clothes of sackcloth and mourning. And he mourned more than Mordecai. He mourned more than 10,000 Mordecais in that garden. The gravity of our exile from God, the gravity of our separation from God, the gravity of the wrath that was due to us that we could not free ourselves from. No, we needed the Lord Jesus Christ to leave his palace in order to become for us that merciful and faithful high priest. And you know, it's interesting. Mordecai says that relief and deliverance will arise from another place. And I told you before, you know where the relief and deliverance comes from. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so your mind probably immediately goes to the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, where he paid the penalty for us, the great exchange, the time when he was our wrath bearer. Do you know what? There's another place. There's another place where the Lord Jesus Christ continues the work of intercession on our behalf. A place where the once for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is applied and is your source of security. The way in which you know that you are delivered from exile, that place is at the Father's right hand where the Lord Jesus Christ lives to intercede. The Lord Jesus Christ there in the Father's throne room is petitioning him on behalf of believers, believers who know the sense of being separated from God, who know the sense of holding on to the guilt of their sin and maybe God's anger with me, all of that that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for at the cross is applied in the sanctuary of God's throne room, which is now, according to the book of Hebrews, become a throne of grace. Finally, in the history of redemption, when the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in that garden, the rightful king, the one who would deliver you, was in the proper saving position on his knees. But now that he's glorified, now that he's ascended, you know what the Lord Jesus Christ continues to do? He prays. What's conveniently left out of Esther chapter 4 is the theme of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His prayer for you. His prayer to the Father. Submitting his will to the Father's in the garden. Not, not my will, but thine be done, he says. Saving you there. And the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, saving you with his prayers. Hebrews 7.25. He's praying before the Father. Well, with someone who is called the captain of our salvation in Hebrews chapter 2, the one who is uh, the one to whom children have been given. 
as he says in this quotation in Hebrews chapter 2. But the one who is able to release us from fear of death, all of our life subject to the bondage of it, delivered from that by being this destroying the one who has the power of death, the devil. The Lord Jesus Christ is truly a merciful and faithful high priest. But there's just one more thing. Hebrews 2 verse 18 says, very carefully, in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. That's only a very simple statement. But sometimes as we begin to suffer, we begin to think, well, you know, it's a little bit easier for the Lord Jesus. He was God in flesh. He, was, he had a divine nature and a human nature. He, of course he was able to withstand the sufferings. I'm not able to. I'm the one who's suffering. But this verse actually flips that thinking around. It says... He himself has suffered being tempted. In other words, when the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted, he suffered. When we are tempted, too often we give in before the suffering gets to be too intense. You see, what this verse is telling us is that there is a proportion of suffering that comes upon those who resist temptation, like the Lord Jesus Christ did. And because there was no way he was going to sin, he suffered to the max. He suffered the extreme amount of suffering that can possibly be engaged in being tempted. He would never uh, give in to that temptation or he would not be our savior. He could not be God. But the Lord Jesus Christ could suffer and he did. So anytime that we suffer, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ Understands, And any time that we're tempted, we know that he understands because he remembers his sufferings. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ uses when he prays at the Father's right hand. His knowledge of his own sufferings when being tempted, enabling him to petition the Father on your behalf. That is an involved king. That is someone who's in the royal position who has already prayed for you. And in his prayer life now, is able to apply the knowledge of the sufferings that he has been involved in. Far from Esther being separated from the people of God in their, in their grief, not even aware of the decree, the Lord Jesus Christ was involved more than you and I in your salvation. He's your savior. In fact, there's two categories. Man and their sin and Jesus and the Savior. And we're not in the saving category. We're in the sinning category. Man sins, but Jesus saves. That's the gospel. So anytime you suffer, anytime you're tempted, anytime you feel isolated from God, anytime you feel like he's angry with you, you look to Jesus Christ. And you look at him not only at the cross, but in that garden, praying. And not only in that garden, but also at the Father's right hand ascended, continuing to pray for you with knowledge of what temptation feels like because he suffered an extreme amount under that temptation. 
No, he doesn't understand giving in. But he understands how to save you through suffering. And that's why the book of Hebrews says, it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many, many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He's the perfect Savior. Relief and deliverance have arrived. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the relief and deliverance that come to us through Jesus Christ. We ask that you help us as we take the supper, as we uh, have communion and fellowship with you in heaven to remember how the Lord Jesus Christ has perfect knowledge of our sufferings and our temptations and our sense of uh, being separated from you. He understands what exile feels like. He understands our plight. And yet he's able to understand as the one who's leading us out, as the one who's saving us from it, as the one who provides salvation every time we provide the sin. Help us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. Help us to trust in him every time we encounter our sin to remember that he is the perfect Savior, perfectly suited to help us in our sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.